We're looking at verses 8 through 16 this morning. We may not get through all of these verses, but it's okay. We're, we don't have a deadline. Um, we'll see how far we get. The title of the lesson today is God's Wisdom on Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage. 1 Corinthians 7, please read along with me. I'm going to begin reading in verse 8, which says this. But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But to the married I give instruction, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband." And that the husband should not divorce his wife, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy." Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? As we come to this passage, it is really a, um, a joy to work through it because it's so applicable in our society today, I think, you know, last week we talked about celibacy, and on the way home, Anita and I were talking, and it was just amazing to us how, how practical a message on celibacy, which you would think would, would uh, really apply to a very small uh, portion or percentage of the church body, um, actually really had all kinds of issues that related to each one of our hearts, heart issues that we needed to deal with. It was, it was fruitful for us. Um, and if you didn't hear that, I encourage you to, to go back and listen to that online. Um, but as we move on to this section, we're dealing again with some of the issues that Paul was faced with from the church in Corinth, issues according to verse 1 that they had written him about. And one of the issues was evidently divorce. People were getting divorced for a number of reasons. And we know that in our society today, divorce is far too common the statistics of marriages that fail compared to those that succeed is really troubling, isn't it? One survey that I read actually said that Christians are more likely to divorce than unbelievers. According to this survey, it said 20% of born-again Christians have been divorced compared to 24% of those who are not born again. But I'd like to challenge you this morning that when you hear statistics like that, not to just take them at face value, to be a bit more discerning and ask more questions. Where do those stats come from? Who took those stats? Who developed those? Who asked the questions? Trying to, were there believers trying to determine who the believers were? Um, you know, one of the reasons why these rates, I think, could be misleading is because many people who take these surveys are professing to be believers, and yet they are not believers. And in the survey that I read, um, I, I found that some of the other questions were asked about different doctrines. 
and 15% of those who claim to be believers, born-again believers, deny the resurrection of Christ. If you deny the resurrection of Christ, there is no hope for you, 1 Corinthians 15 says. So those are not believers, 15% of those surveyed. 28% believe that Jesus committed sins during his life on earth, and they claim to be born-again Christians. Same survey. So if Jesus sinned, then he wasn't a perfect sacrifice, and there is no hope for us. Again, 1 Corinthians 15. 34% believe that a person, if a person is good enough, he can earn his place to heaven. 34% of those who claim to be born-again Christians. And yet, the Bible is clear that we are saved not by works, but by faith alone. And so, um, it's, it's Christ's work that saves us. You can't be good enough. And if you believe that you're grinding to heaven because you are good enough, you're not a Christian. 26% believe that it doesn't matter what faith you follow because they all teach the same lessons, which is really a sad commentary on people who are filling out surveys and claiming to be Christians. And so I would conclude that in reality, many of these people in this survey who claim to be born-again Christians are not born-again at all. According to Scripture, the, only one, the one who is truly born-again has an amazing transformation from within. It's an interchange whereby you're a new creation. You're free from the bondage of sin. Sin no longer has dominion over you, according to Romans chapter 6. And you will struggle against sin in this life, but uh, there is no life-dominating sin that characterizes your life. And because of his grace, you can be free from any habitual sin that once enslaved you. And so as we look at this passage, uh, I was thinking about statistics, and actually I was at a wedding yesterday, and the pastor said that uh, Christian couples who follow God's design for marriage have a 0% divorce rate. And I like that. I, I like that because there are really those that follow God's design, 100% of those marriages are not only lifelong marriages, but they are joy-filled marriages. When both the husband and the wife are believers who follow God's pattern for marriage as laid out in his word, then their marriage uh, will be successful because divorce happens when one or both parties decides to abandon God's design for marriage and do and follow the world's pattern for marriage. And there's a tension. There's a struggle in our lives because we live in this world and we're tempted by the world and we, we have a struggle with how really are we following God's design for marriage. It's impossible for you to have a Christ-honoring marriage if you have not yet bowed your knee to the Lord. And even if you are a believer, it's a constant reminder to us that we need to be renewing our minds and in the Word and following the Word and having the Word as our priority as far as how we're going to interact with one another. Now in Corinth, Corinth, as we know, was a very immoral place. Uh, there was uh, uh, prostitution, there was, uh, mixed in with idolatry, was common in that culture. Some of that, we know from chapter 6, had been infiltrating the church and their thinking. They had many difficulties with the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. As we talked about last week, some of those in Corinth felt like um, since Paul was single, since Paul was unmarried and evidently had the gift of singleness, they prized celibacy to the extent where some were uh, evidently de 
divorcing. They would come to faith in Christ and look at their unbelieving spouse who might have been a pagan idol worshiper and saying, how can I have this idol worshiper in my home? How can God bless this? I'm going to divorce this pagan and now marry a Christian. Others might have said, well, um, I'm going to divorce my pagan uh, or my Christian spouse and become uh, just a, a celibate a uh, single Christian like Paul is, an unmarried believer, and that'll be somehow more spiritual. And some, evidently, as we discussed last week, were uh, saying, we'll remain married, but we'll live celibate lives, because for some reason that may seem more spiritual than if we were involved in a marriage that involved a sexual relationship. And so some of the confusion may have been from just people looking at Paul and misinterpreting what he was saying or why he was single, why he was not married, why he was not pursuing marriage. We talked also last week about, somebody had asked a question about uh, Paul and whether he ever had been married. If you look at verse um, 8, he says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them to remain even as I. And um, I think some versions, the ESV adds the word am single, Uh, But that's not in the original. He's saying, even as I. But what he's saying is that he is not married, which very well could be no longer married. Uh, There there is some evidence that points toward the fact that Paul had been married at one time. Again, we're not going to be hard and fast on this or be dogmatic about it. But Paul did claim in in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And uh, he was a Pharisee, and, and so if he had been on the Sanhedrin, um, he would have had to have been married. It was a requirement to be on the Sanhedrin. We don't know if he was on. But if he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he also would not have neglected the commandment to be fruitful and multiply the earth. So he obviously would have pursued marriage at one stage as a Hebrew. Um, and so as we, as we think about Paul, uh, it seems as though there are other reasons we're going to get to in a moment. Um, it seems as though he had been married at one time, but now wasn't. Probably his wife had passed away. Now, this passage we're getting into today, one of, the, one of the keys to this passage, to really understanding the whole section, is defining terms, and one of the key terms here is unmarried. And this is where I think a lot of confusion comes in, because if you look at verse 8, he says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows. So my question is, this is my opening question. I'm inviting you to participate. There are are three different possibilities that I see in Scripture, three different views that different theologians hold as to what it means to be unmarried. So who can tell me what they think it means to be unmarried? Rick, you look like you want to say something. Oh, someone who's not married. So just a, uh, a, a general universal term that uh, it, it would include divorced people, um, uh, people who had never been married, and, um, yeah, and, and, and uh, widows, widowers, all those people, right? Yeah, that's not right. Um. LAUGHTER no, I don't want you to feel bad about saying, uh, thank you for volunteering. Anyways, but uh, the, um, uh, yes. Maybe people who were once married but are now unmarried. Okay, so, we, so we call them the demarried, de-married. or if you want to be more accurate, I think we use an adverb, the previously married. Yes. So 
So that's another possibility. We have a possibility of the married. We have the possibility of the previously married, which would include both divorced people and widowers. It wouldn't include widows because widows are mentioned all along with them, although it would include them, but, you know, really just bringing that more specifically. Another possible interpretation is that we're just talking about widowers here. A widow is a female, a lady who's lost her husband. A widower is somebody, a male, who's lost his wife and is now living unmarried. Yes? Anybody who would not be committing adultery if he got married. So, yeah, that, that, another way of saying that would be somebody who has been divorced on biblical grounds and or, and or is a widow or a widower. So that, that's another option. And, but we'll deal with that because we do talk about even those who have been divorced uh, not on biblical grounds in this section. So, so that we'll deal with them. But let, 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 me, let me try and narrow it down to these three. Um, so we have all unmarried people, the Rick Dempsey view. Um, so uh, here's one of the problems with that. And, and again, I'm going to present that this is how it seems clearest to me, but I want you to push back on this. If this is not clear to you, I want to, look, I want to be convinced by Scripture. I don't want you to be convinced just because Rick said it or just because I said it. I want Scripture to, to help define the terms because terms are often defined by context, even in, in any language they are. And so what does he mean by unmarried? Well, if he means that it's a general term for everybody, one of the questions I have is that in verse 25, he turns to another group of people and he says, now concerning virgins. The term virgins, we get the word parthenon from it. It's parthenos. Uh, parthenos means uh, unmarried, virgin, uh, uh, never having a, uh, uh, a husband, never having been in a sexual relationship. This is the idea of a never have been married person. Uh, the Parthenon is a Greek temple uh, in Athens named after virgins. So that's where we get the, the word from, but this idea is the never been married. So the question is, why would he call the unmarried and then say, and now concerning virgins or the never been married? Um, also, um, I think we need to be careful about taking an English word that we use today and taking the meaning that we have today and automatically applying that to the original Greek meaning without thinking about the Greek context in which it was used. And another um, issue is that in verse, uh, which verse is it? I think it is um, verse 11. You notice the word is used there, speaking of somebody who's divorced. So it says, but to the married, I give instruction not up of the Lord that the, hus- that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must be remain, remain unmarried. And so that, that same word there is this idea of um, a divorced person falls into this category. But when we're thinking about all unmarried, um, I guess the two questions I would have is, first of all, if it's all unmarried, why ask the all unmarried and widows? If he's using a, a, um, a general term for everybody, who's unmarried, you wouldn't need to say, and widows, in verse 8. And also, if it's everybody, why in verse 25 does he say, and now concerning virgins, or the never been married? All right? 
So those are my questions, which seem to think that I don't think he's talking about everybody universally who is simply not married. Uh, a second position is the widowers. Some have argued that though, that though there is a Greek word for widow, and there is a Greek word for widower, the Greek word for widower was not used in the first century in Koine Greek, and therefore he used another term, a masculine term, which meant unmarried, and he used it alongside. So he's saying the widower and the widow. Widower is a funny word because widower sounds like you've, you've widowed someone else, uh, but you're actually the one who is widowed. But um, uh, nonetheless, I'm not going to try and make up new words in English. So, um, but we're talking about, uh, some, some believe he's talking about an unmarried, a widowed husband or a widowed wife, and he uses those connected together. Um, the problem with that is in verse 11, the same word is also used to describe a divorced person, as we've already pointed out. And so it seems to be broader than just somebody who's lost a spouse to death. Okay, which leads us with a third view, and that is widowers are divorced people, the demarried or the previously married. And this would explain why Paul addresses virgins as a separate group of people in verse 25. Also note in verse 34... You have a woman who is unmarried, and then it says, and a virgin. Verse 34 says, um, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord. Here, talking about two different women, one who is unmarried and one who's never been married. So I hope you're seeing some of the distinctions here in terminology. It just seems from the context of this passage that Paul is addressing various groups of people and the unmarried is a more defined group than those who were just have never been, or than those who are single. Uh, that we would say they are single in our in our society, um, but we're talking about those who had been previously married and are no longer married because they are either divorced or because they were um, uh, their spouse had died, and the term would then cover the widowers and the divorced, and most likely those who were divorced prior to coming to faith in Christ. And we'll see that again from the context. But I just want to stop there. We haven't even got into our passage. We're just trying to define a term as a fun way to introduce the passage to us. Is there, are there any questions about that? It makes sense? Yes. Yeah, so I think because he wanted to emphasize widows. Also, another thing about widows in the first century. Widows, the reason why we don't talk about widowers in the first uh, century is because, and this is going to sound uh, a little unpolitically correct, but it was very much a patriarchal society. And so a widow who was without a husband and was older was really destitute, which is why the church and why the Hebrews had to take care of widows so much and why they're mentioned so much in Scripture. Um, a... A man who lost his wife to death was not in the same destitute position necessarily as a female. And so they weren't spoken of as much in Scripture uh, in the same kind of category that the church needed to take care of them because they had means by which they could still take care of themselves in that society, in that culture. And so I think he mentions widows here 
And then maybe he didn't have a word for widower, but the term unmarried covers divorced people and, um, and those who uh, are widowers. Yeah, does that answer your question? All right. Any other questions? I don't want to be too confusing too early, but we'll, we'll just move on. I think, I think as, we get, as we get going here, it'll, it'll start to come to light a little bit more. So we're looking at this passage, and verses 8 through 16, we're going to look at three groups of people uh, where we see God's wisdom that will help us to make wise decisions regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Three groups of people. And the first group of people we're going to call the previously married. The previously married, verses 8 and 9. I'll read it once again. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain, even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn and I'm going to just comment here that with passion in the New American Standard is in the italics there, and so it just says to burn. That's, that's what it says there. I don't think it literally means to burn like with fire, but it's figurative. It could mean to burn. Some have said in judgment and could mean that to burn with passion. And really, we're probably looking at passion there. I read a story that was pretty great about a Greek professor who had a class of uh, 22-year-olds and 23-year-olds and he, he was talking about this passage and how the word burn could mean these two different things. There was one lady who had retired. She was 83 years old. She was also in the class. She was taking Greek because she's 83 and she had retired and she wanted to take Greek. So she's in this class with all these young college students. He's talking about this and she raises her hand. She says, oh, I think it means to burn with passion for sure. Uh, and there's a sense in which... Um, uh, you can't interpret Scripture by your life experience, but there's also some, something to be said for somebody who has a lot, of, a lot of life experience and how this Scripture would apply. Um, and we'll talk some more about that, um, but about the passion and whether that's sin or not. But let's just take a look at the previously married. Um, I think he's speaking to new believers here. They've come to faith in Christ at some point, after their divorce or after the loss of their spouse, because verses 10 through 16, Paul has a separate set of instructions for those who were uh, married to believers and either divorced or wanting a divorce, or those who are married to unbelievers and divorced or wanting a divorce. And therefore, Paul's writing seems to be very systematically here covering different groups. And he says in verse 8, hey, either remain single, which is good or just, remain unmarried, that is, um, or get married. And um, somebody read, uh, let's see if some different versions for verse 9. What does it say in verse 9? Who has ESV? Somebody want to read that for me? Yes. Sorry. Right. Third row, Mrs. Roth. Okay, if they cannot exercise self-control. Someone else read another version for me. Okay, I'll read NASB, which says this. If they do not have self-control, notice the difference. One translated cannot exercise self-control. The other one, do not have self-control. I think the more accurate translation would be do not having, or if they are not having self-control, um, and I, I don't think there's a necessary implication here that there's sin going on. There may be sin going on, but there may just be a desire that is consuming this person's life, and that desire may be for marriage. 
They may have a passion for marriage, a desire for marriage, which is not a sinful desire. It can become all-consuming and help you and cause you to lose your focus, and so that can become sinful. It can become very lustful, and therefore that could be sinful. But I don't think it's implicitly in the text here that there is sin going on in the person's life. And what I want to make the the reason I make that point is because some have said and come to me and said well, my girlfriend and I are so passionate about each other and we're falling into sin and therefore we believe this verse is telling us to get married. And I think that that's a wrong application of this verse. You're reading too much into the text and you're saying, well, because we're sinning, it means we're meant for each other. Which in reality, because you're sinning, it means that she should think twice about you, young man, because you're the spiritual leader here and you're not building a trust relationship. In fact, you're teaching her that you have little self-control. And that's going to be hard for you to overcome in a marriage. Not impossible, and certainly it can help you. It can be overcome. Um, But uh, Paul gives two options there. He says, hey, remain unmarried, which is good. It's just. He's for that. Or get married, verse 9. And so... um, and, and so and as we think about this teaching, this is not new for widows or widowers. In fact, down in verse 39 of 1 Corinthians 7, he says, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And this is taught elsewhere in Scripture in Romans 7, verse 3, if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Notice the words free and bound in these passages. 1 Timothy 5.14, young widows are even encouraged to get married in 1 Timothy 5.14. Paul wrote, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity for the adversary to speak reproachfully. And so people generally really rejoice when a widow or a widower has time and grieves and yet meets someone and gets remarried. You've known people who've lost a spouse and later they find someone and you rejoice with them. Um, But sometimes when a divorced person wants to get remarried, there's kind of a hush and a silent disapproval. Almost like this is not something I'm sure I should rejoice in. And I think part of the reason for that is that we're not clear on what the Bible says and should divorced people be remarried. By far the more difficult issue to deal with biblically is not divorce, but remarriage. Are there grounds for remarriage? And if, there are, if there's a biblical warrant for remarriage, then we should rejoice in it as much as any other marriage. Because if God approves of it and we don't, then we're being legalistic and we're imposing our self-conceived ideas about what is right and wrong on people when God doesn't have those same ideas. And we become very judgmental and legalistic. And we need to guard against that. Um, the Bible teaches that um, there, are, um, there are times when people shouldn't get married, but there are times when people should get married, and we need to make sure that we're not um, being legalistic there. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe 
and who know the truth. Interesting that legalism there, talking about you know, old dietary restrictions being imposed on new believers who are not Jewish, but also this idea of, hey, you shouldn't get married, you know? Um, so um, I, think that, I think that verses 7 and 8, or 8 and 9, we have believers who were previously married, and there's really two options. Stay as you are, which is the overarching principle he's going to get at in this chapter, remain as you are. Uh, is a good principle to follow. But if you want to get married, get married. Then the question comes up, well, what if there are not biblical grounds for remarriage? And that's what he moves to next, and that's what we're looking at in verses 10 through 12. So we have another group of people in verses 10 through 12 where we've seen those who are previously married, but now we're going to see a second group of people, those who are married to fellow believers. A believer married to a believer. Verses 10 and 11, which says this. But to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul says in verse 10, he begins with the words, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Um, Scripture is clear that what the apostles teach from the Lord is Scripture. So why does he say, why does he emphasize the fact that the Lord commanded this? Some say, well, he's saying he's just giving his own opinion in verse 12, because in verse 12 he says, um, but to the rest I say, not the Lord. So he has this contrast in verses 10 and 11. I say this, or I say this, but really the Lord has said this. In verse 12 and following, the, I say this, but not the Lord. Is he just giving his opinion later on? I don't think so. Um, and and we, we would know this through our study because um, really in 1 Corinthians, the, there's an issue in the first six chapters, there's an issue of division, and a lot of that division has to do with the problem of human wisdom and people giving their own wisdom and not God's wisdom. And so Paul says very clearly in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, now we, he's talking about the apostles and the writers of Scripture, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So it seems unlikely that Paul would have said earlier on in the letter, hey, I speak authoritatively, I'm an apostle, I speak on behalf of God, um, and so therefore, uh, this, is what, uh, this, this, is, this is authoritative, this is God's word, I'm not speaking by human wisdom, and then later saying, hey, I'm just giving some human wisdom here. Um, he, I, I think the better possibility for why he says, yet not I but the Lord, yet not I but the Lord, and then in verse 12, um, changing it to, um, to the rest I say, not the Lord, is he simply saying that Jesus already taught on this in verses 10 and 12. Um, Jesus already taught that divorce was wrong except for sexual immorality, except for adultery. Uh, that was an exception that Jesus had taught on. Um, Jesus in Matthew 19 had quoted Genesis 2.24, which says, For this cause, speaking of marriage, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. And then Christ added in Matthew 19, what God therefore has joined together, let no man separate. So Paul's teaching the same thing that Jesus has already taught. 
that you shouldn't get divorced. Um, The Pharisees had asked Jesus. Jesus explained God allowed Moses to permit divorce only because of people's hardness of hearts, Matthew 19, verses 7 through 8. And it was only permissible because of sexual immorality, and that he also teaches the same thing in Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. So divorce is something that's contrary to God's plan for mankind. And even though God hates divorce, Malachi 2.10, and even though divorce is always related to sin, at least sin on one person's fault. And because we're all sinners today, uh, we, we sometimes refer to someone as the innocent party, and yet we know that no one is completely pure or innocent, that we have all sinned, even though the, the, the grounds for the divorce may fall much more heavily on one spouse than the other. Um, it's important to recognize that divorce itself is not specifically sin. It's not necessarily sin. It is not sin necessarily to get a divorce. God hates divorce, but it is not necessarily sin. Any questions about that? The reason I say that is because to say that divorce is always sin would mean that God is a sinner, because God himself is a divorced being. In Jeremiah 3.8, it says, Then I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and played the harlot also. God says, I wrote a certificate of divorce for Israel. Isaiah 50, verse 1, thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of your mother's divorce, whom I have put away, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you, for your iniquities have sold yourself? For, for your iniquities you have sold yourselves, and for your transgressions your mother has been put away. And then finally, as a result of that divorce in Hosea 2.2, 2, um, God says, bring charges against your mother, bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away, let her, put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts. So divorce is not necessarily sin. Um, though sin is always related to divorce. And in the case of God's divorce from Israel, the sin was all on behalf of Israel. Another question that comes up, which I I think I'm going to skip over and and maybe leave towards the end, um, unless somebody has a question. I'm not going to feed the questions if nobody's asking them. Yes? So in verse 6, the question is, if Paul's, uh, regarding his authoritative, um, he says, but I say this way of concession, not of command. Yeah, I talked a little bit about this last week. I think that the word concession is, is not the best word to be translated there. But he's talking there, and the, the question is, what is he talking about? Is he talking about um, marriage as opposed to not being married? Um, or some say, is he talking about depriving yourself for a certain amount of time? I think he's talking here 
uh, about, um, uh, about marriage in general. And he's saying, he's trying to make it clear because before, he's, he's using a lot of imperatives here. If you look back at verse um, 3, he says, The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body. Stop depriving one another. He's, he's giving these commands, and I think there at the end, he, he wants to make it clear, I'm not commanding you all to get married. So he's trying to make that clear. He himself was not married, which he makes clear in the following verses. It's a good question. All right. Um, so when we look at the third group of people, and let's just go ahead and get to the third group of people um, and at least start in here. With the third group of people are believers who are married to unbelievers. So if we look at our passage, we have... Those who are unmarried, in other words, previously married, um, verses 8 and 9. Those who are believers married to believers. And let's just talk a little bit more about this because I, I did skip over this. Verse 10, 11. To the married I give instruction, not I but the Lord, that the, husband, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So if you're a believer and you're married to another believer and your spouse, you decide to get a divorce... You don't have biblical grounds for divorce, or maybe you did it before Paul wrote this letter, or maybe you were divorced before you were both believers, and now you're both believers. Uh, the implication here is that you should remain unmarried. And actually, if you're both unbelievers and you're divorced, there are a lot of other questions that need to be asked, one of them being, were there biblical grounds for divorce? Secondly, uh, have you remained, um, uh, you know, have you remained um, uh, un, uh, ch- chased during your time of separation. There are all kinds of issues uh, here, but the general principle, if you're a believer and you're married to another, another believer, don't get divorced. And if you have been divorced and you're both believers, and by the way, there's a problem here, because if you're both believers and you're divorced, then your church hasn't gotten involved. Because if the church got involved, it would discipline you, and you would be treated, one of you at least, would be treated as an unbeliever, which would put you in a different category. So if you're both believers, you get a divorce, um, uh, you have two options. Remain unmarried or be reconciled to one another. Those are the options for believers who are divorced from another believer. He moves on, talking to those who are married to unbelievers, beginning in verse 12, to the rest. The rest there is a word that he uses to describe. Yes, do you have a question? Yeah, quick question about the married to fellow believers. Uh, What about sexual immorality? So So that's already been implied from verse uh, 10 because the Lord has already taught on this, and so except for cases of infidelity. Where there's been infidelity, you may get divorced. There are biblical grounds there. And really, we have two biblical grounds for divorce. The first one is for infidelity, and the second one we're going to find in the next passage, which is abandonment. Yes? What if they were claiming to be believers? Um, They get divorced, and then later on in life, they become real believers, and 
say one of them does, and try to reconcile the relationship. Yeah. So the question is, you have a, a married you have a married couple. They're both not believers, but they claim to be. They're professing believers, but they're not real believers. They're the people in the survey who said, I'm a born-again Christian, and yet uh, I don't believe Jesus rose from the grave, right? That, that's a problem, okay? And then they get divorced, and then for some reason they both get saved. And should the question is, should they try to be reconciled? I think the options are clear here. Well, first of all, reconciliation. Let's talk about reconciliation because, first of all, restitution is something different. Any unbeliever who does something prior to coming to faith in Christ, and they've sinned against other people, they should try to make restitution. They should go to the person and say, listen, I sinned against you. Uh, you know, you can't steal somebody's car and then come to faith in Christ and park next to them at church. <laughs> right? Because it's not evidence of an internal change. And so, nor can you really, uh, uh, you know, uh, be, be just wrong to another person, your spouse, divorce them, claim faith in Christ, and never reach out to them. I really think that there's a, there, there's a burden on you. Now, whether or not you should then be remarried to one another, I would say not necessarily. And I think that verses 10 and 11 deal with that. You can remain unmarried or be reconciled to one another. I would... I would counsel them to remain unmarried. Uh, and this is, a, this is a difficult question because, and there, there, there would be some who would disagree with me, because they were not believers before. I've never come across this situation. Um, I've come across a situation where pe- people were divorced. 20 years later, one of them wanted to get remarried, and the other one said, well, I'm a believer, and I, there were no biblical grounds for divorce. And because the church never got involved, it's, it's really a hard thing to unwind and to go through and, and say this. It, it gets into a long counseling situation. Nothing's going to happen quickly. It's going to be a long, drawn-out process. In, in that situation, the children actually got involved, and the children actually said, Dad, you did have, there were biblical grounds for divorce, and we know, and you need to back off. And, and so, but, but it's not easy. And this is why, I guess if there's one kind of um, secondary principle that I want to emphasize here, just take a, a, real, a little pastoral moment, and that is this is one of the reasons why church membership is important, and that you are part, an active part of a local church that is actually practicing discipline, because discipline serves these situations. Because 20 years later, when the one spouse says, well, you know, I have an opportunity to marry. There's this great widow, and, 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 and we've developed this friendship, and my former spouse, you know, uh, left me for, un, you know, I have biblical grounds for divorce. Am I free to remarry? And, and the, you know, your current pastor should say, well, did the church get involved when you guys were struggling? And if you say, well, no, that's a problem because you, you haven't been served by the body of Christ. There hasn't been a group of elders. There should be a group of elders that your current pastor could go back and say, hey, uh, 20 years ago, uh, there was someone in, who got a divorce. Were you guys involved in that? And they should say, oh, yeah. And, or even if it's a new pastor, look up in the files. Yes, and we found that the wife was unfaithful and we disciplined her out. She was unrepentant. And this person went and then these people went and then the elders got involved and we did it as lovingly as possible. And so... Divorce is never something that is 
required for biblical grounds. If there's infidelity, you don't have to get a divorce. But it is a biblical ground for divorce, and you are permitted to divorce for those grounds. Yes? So if there's a believer and they have a child and, and the, the father's a believer, the mother's an unbeliever, we're not talking about specific situations, so it doesn't matter, right? So one's a believer and one's an unbeliever, right? And so the fact that they have a child does not mean that they should get married. In fact, if you're divorced and you're now a believer and your former spouse is an unbeliever, you cannot get remarried because a believer cannot marry an unbeliever. So you found yourself in a situation where you might actually, if, 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 if you're, uh, you know, and you're not obligated to get married to someone else either. And you may very well, the wisest move might be for you to continue to pray and wait and have that relationship with that child. Um, but uh, it would be sin for you to marry your former spouse. It wouldn't necessarily be sin for you to marry someone else if there were biblical grounds for the divorce. These are good questions, and this is a tough issue. And one of the reasons why I wanted to walk through this slowly with questions, and I'll I'll get this, we still have a couple of minutes, is because if we don't know the answers to these, how are we going to talk to our friends? Because we know people who are going through this. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so the question is, what kind of harm happens? Or, you know, the, the question I, I thought we were going to deal with before was actually physical abuse, because that's another question. Because today, you talk to different counselors, and they say, well, what about physical abuse? What about emotional abuse? Are those grounds for divorce? And I'm going to leave you hanging a little bit on, on that. I I'll, I'll, take you, I'll give you the short answer, and then we'll jump right back into that as an introduction next week. But here's, here's, the, here's the short answer, and that is, I don't find anything in Scripture that gives even physical abuse as grounds for divorce, okay? Or emotional abuse. Um, but this is, again, why it's so important to be really a part of a church body, because if there's physical abuse... Your church family should be so closely uh, associated with you that there's not an opportunity for that physical abuse to occur again. If there's emotional abuse, there should be people so involved in your lives that that issue is being dealt with from a body of believers who, like the Romans, were competent to counsel one another. And that maybe mean you have people moving in with you. It maybe mean that you are, uh, I mean, I've seen all kinds of scenarios where this takes place. And it's not easy. It's going to be a long, difficult road. But I do not believe the Bible says that it's biblical grounds for divorce. As hard as that is, it could be a calling of suffering that you might have to endure for a long time. Including gender transition. Because I don't think gender transition is really real. I don't think that somebody really can transition their gender. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. The reality is, is that if, if, if your life is so focused on Christ, Christ is so offensive to those who don't want to be around him, they will not want to be around you. That's the reality. And that's why being a part of the church family and focusing on living out Christ. Now, you're not trying to be Christ to get rid of your spouse. So we'll... we'll <laughs> We'll talk about that. These are great questions. Thank you for these. I'm going to close in prayer, and we're going to pick this up next week, all right? Thank you, Father, for this time together. I thank you, Lord. These are difficult situations and painful, which is all the more reason why it's important for us to understand your word clearly. My desire, Lord, is that I could be able to take anyone to these verses and be able to help counsel them through their situation. And so I pray, Lord, that you would teach us all your words so that we could give a full counsel from you, God's wisdom, not human wisdom, for people in very difficult situations. We commit this to you. We pray for this. In Jesus' name, amen.